My, my, my. I would say that the pump has been primed for what we're going to talk about this morning. That was beautiful. If your heart is not stirred of that, uh, you're dead, I guess. <laughs> That's all I can say about that. It's a pleasure to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning. I'm excited to deliver a message that, it, that it's much needed, but at the same time, just want to let forewarn you that it could be a hammer to your heart and your soul. We're going to talk about forgiveness. What is true forgiveness? What is true Christ-like forgiveness like? I want you to open up your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 through 32. This will be our platform this morning. This is where we're going to be jumping off from, and then we're going to the deep end of the pool. We'll be going to the book of Genesis here shortly. So let me Go to the Lord in prayer before we read God's word. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we're truly thankful for all that you have done for uh, an undeserving people. Lord Jesus, we have sang this morning about your birth and about you being a babe and um, the night that it happened. Lord Jesus, help us, Lord Jesus, to let those words and the thoughts of why you came to forgive us unworthy rebels, enemies of God so that we could be in heaven with you. Help us, Lord, to think about those things and help those things resonate in our heart and our soul and our conscience this morning. Pray, God, you'll remove me this morning as we open up God's word and I pray, God, you'll speak to us. Lord, help us to have ears to ear and eyes to See, Lord Jesus, in a heart that's open to receive what you have for us this morning. We ask these things in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4 was written by the Apostle Paul. And he writes this to a group of believers in Ephesus. And so mark that in your Bible. This is to a group of believers, just like the message this morning is to a group of believers. In Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about the, the new life to to put off the old self once you've been born again and put on the new self. It's an, an idea of the process of sanctification. At the end of chapter 4, uh, two verses, it's kind of interesting that he would have to say this to born-again believers in the house of God. And Paul writes this, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 through 32. Let all bitterness... And wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's interesting as I read this command by Paul, he's commanding believers, folks like you and I who say, I have put all my... Hope, my faith, and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. I have become a new creature. Behold, all things have passed away and all things are new. But He's commanding these believers that they need to be kind to one another, tenderhearted to one another, even, even forgiving to one another. The statement by Paul here is quite straightforward. We're to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. 
And in this statement, we see this command, but also within that begs a question to be answered. How do I forgive like Christ? So I'm going to prime the pump a little bit more in in a crowd this size. If I was a betting man, I would bet money that there's somebody in this room this morning that has a heavy heart because they're holding on to forgiveness that they should have given out, doled out a long time ago. Perhaps you're in the room this morning and you have some angst and you have some bitterness and that yucky feeling that's in your heart and your soul when you see someone who needs your forgiveness, but you refuse to give it. The definition of the word forgiveness, and I've taken this out of the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, says to pardon, to remit as an offense or debt, to overlook an offense and treat the offender as not guilty. Even though they have offended you in some way, they have sinned against you in one way, the definition of the word forgiveness is to treat that person as though they are not guilty. I don't know about you, but for me and some probably other people, forgiving is a really hard thing to do. I think one of the most difficult things for a human to do is to forgive, truly forgive C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, wrote this. He said that everyone thinks that forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. We have little sayings about how we forgive one another. We'll say, well, let's let bygones be bygones, right? Or uh, let's uh, bury the hatchet. The idiom, bury the hatchet, actually comes from uh, Native American tribes as they would war against one another. Um, And when they would come to the point where they would cease hostilities and want to have peace and forgive each other for things they had done, the leaders would meet and they would have a hatchet or another implement of war and they would dig a hole in the ground as they sat before it and they would cover it up and they would bury it. So that it would not be seen anymore. Symbolic of let's cease hostilities. Let's forgive one another. Unfortunately, we have that same idea in regards to let's forgive each other. But when we bury the hatchet, probably more times than none, we like to leave the handle up out of the ground. So we have access to that. Reminds me of a story of a guy named Joe who had a best friend by the name of Bill, and they were best friends ever since they were teenagers. Something happened in their relationship which severed that. Somebody did something to somebody, and someone could not forgive. Joe, as he finds out that he has a terminal illness, he's in his bed, and he knows he's about to die, and he's a Christian. Bill's a Christian. And he's struggling with this angst, That he has toward his friend. And he says, I cannot go out into eternity feeling this way toward my friend. So he calls his friend up. And he says, Bill, can you come over? I need to talk to you. So Bill comes over. And then Joe reluctantly 
and gets it out. He says, look, I, I forgive you for what you did to me, uh, and I need you to forgive me as well. And it seemed everything was going well till Bill just goes to leave, and he, as he puts his hand on the, the doorknob of the door to Joe's bedroom, Joe says this. He says, but remember, if I get better, this doesn't count. We, you know, we laugh at that. It's funny, but how true, sadly, that is. One of the biggest robbers of joy and peace and contentment in your life and my life is the fact that we will not give forgiveness to someone and we have a hard time accepting forgiveness. Just as we've read in Ephesians chapter 4, I would call this six symptoms of the individual who refuses to forgive, the individual who cannot accept forgiveness. This person is a grudge holder. Very bitter and angry individual. Always upset. Talks about people behind their backs. This person can't even walk past the person that they have angst against without boiling over. You would rather walk five miles out of the way or barefoot in the snow than have to go by that person and make eye contact or even say anything to them like good day or hello. Often the forgiveness that we refuse to give is because of our own spiritual immaturity. James in James chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 describes this. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it upon your passions. James is not talking about that someone literally gets stabbed in the back with a knife or their throat cut. He's talking about how we treat each other. In regards to I murder you, you murder me. So the idea, if I cannot forgive you, I'm not going to like you. I don't want anybody else to like you. Also, physically speaking, there's consequences for an individual who won't forgive or cannot receive forgiveness. Karen Schwartz, who's a medical doctor with the University of John Hopkins Medical Center, an article wrote this in regards to Failure to forgive causes chronic anger, which puts you into a fight-or-flight mode, which results in numerous changes in heart rate, blood pressure, and immune response. Those changes then increase the risk of depression, heart disease, and diabetes, among other conditions. Forgiveness, however, calms stress levels, leading to improved health. It's often been said that the person who will not re- well, he refuses to give forgiveness to someone. is like the individual who takes a vial of poison and drinks it in the hopes of it will kill the person that they won't forgive. That's what the refusal of forgiveness will do to you. But yet there are even more significant costs to not forgiving, especially as a believer. That's your relationship with Christ. After Jesus taught his disciples to pray, we all remember the prayer that he taught his disciples. Our Father, which art in heaven, how will I be thy name? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Right after that, Jesus makes this statement in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, 
your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. When we choose not to forgive, we do two things. We elevate ourselves above God. We put ourselves in the place of God. And we also willfully choose to disregard our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And it hinders our sanctification. It hinders our growth. Here's what happens. The person who walks around with unforgiveness in their heart refuses to accept forgiveness. You have an internal turmoil going on in your life all the time. It affects your relationships with your family. It, it affects relationships with other friends. Another aspect regarding forgiveness, because you may say, well, okay, Pete, I get that. I know the Bible says we ought to forgive. But how many times then should I forgive that person who is always offending me? Well, you know, the Apostle Peter had the same question that he asked of the Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 22, Peter asked Jesus a question about how many times, Lord, should we forgive? Seven times. And we look at that where we live in 2023 and we think that's ridiculous. But you have to remember why he would say that. It was the teaching of the rabbis back during this time that you only had to forgive somebody three times. It comes out of the book of Amos that God forgave Israel's enemies three times and after that, So this is Peter in his way to appear pious before the Lord Jesus Christ to make his fellow apostles think, whoa, man, Peter, you have reached the pinnacle of of piety. We all need to be like you. Peter stands and says, well, Lord, how often should we forgive? Seven times? And we know the response that Jesus gave Peter. He said, no, Peter, 70 times seven That was not an arbitrary number. That's not Jesus saying, okay, 490 times, you're done. I don't have to forgive you. That's an ongoing process of forgiving those who sin against you, those who offend you. Unfortunately, for many of us, the word forgiveness is a a way to get out of conflict with someone, a way to avoid the topic of talking about why you need forgiveness why you need to give forgiveness. And I know some offenses against us are easy to forgive. If someone knocks the coke out of your hand, oh, I'm sorry, oh, we can forgive that. That, Those things are easy. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever seen, perhaps you have the courtroom scenes where a child, a spouse, has been brutally murdered by someone? without any remorse. And as the person who has done this dastardly deed stands in front of the courtroom, the mom or the father or the husband stands up and looks at the guilty person and says, I forgive you. How is that even possible? And is that even possible? How does that sort of forgiveness actually happen in the real world? If you're like me, I don't want to have that heaviness in my soul and in my heart. I want to have the peace and the joy 
that comes with knowing that I have fellowship with my heavenly Father. But it's sin such as the refusal to forgive, even the refusal to accept forgiveness, that causes us so much trouble. And we wonder, why is my life a wreck as a Christian? How come I don't have that joy and that peace? Perhaps this morning, because you need to forgive someone. Maybe it's because you need to ask for forgiveness. So going back and thinking about that question that has to do with Paul's command that we're to forgive like Christ forgave. How do you do that? What, what's the nuts and the bolts that make that happen? Well, a good illustration is always a true story. Genesis chapter 37 begins this 20-year journey of a young man by the name of Joseph. We see Joseph is 17 years old in Genesis chapter 37, and he's daddy's favorite boy, and all his older brothers know that. Right? Daddy makes Joseph a coat of many colors. Joseph has a gift. He's able to dream dreams. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 37 that Joseph shared the dreams with his brothers. And in that set of scripture, we see three times that Joseph's brothers hated him, hated him more, and hated him even more. Joseph's own flesh and blood brothers have developed an animosity toward Joseph that you don't really see in households and, and families. It goes on to the point where Joseph's daddy gives him a command to go look for your brothers because they're wayward. I want to find out where they're at. I want them to come home. Joseph goes and he's searching for his brothers and he finds out where they're at. So he goes even further to go find his brothers. The Bible tells us that his brothers see Joseph coming from afar off and vitriol and hatred and bitterness and anger wells up in their hearts and their souls. And they said, that's killing their own flesh and blood. Joseph has no idea what he's walking into. He comes up and instead of a, hey, little brother, how you doing? The Bible says that they stripped him of his coat of many colors and they threw him into an empty well. But it's a lot more than that. It wasn't that when Joseph came up, his brother said, Hey, Joseph, can we have your jacket, please? And hey, would you please go down in this empty well? No, it was brutal. Joseph was accosted by his own flesh and blood. He was physically abused. He was verbally abused. And just think about the emotional abuse. How do we know that? Because later on, 20 years down the road, when God providentially brings a famine into the land of Canaan, which forces Joseph's brothers to go to Egypt looking for food. See, when they sold Joseph, they had changed their minds. As he was in the hole begging and pleading with his brothers not to do this, the Bible says back in Genesis 37 that they were so calloused in their heart that they just sat down and they ate. In the background, Joseph's crying and he's begging his brothers and they're that calloused. I don't think anybody in this room has had something that horrible happen to you. We would hope not. So they said, well, let's sell him instead of having his blood on our hands physically. So they sold him. 
And the reason they sold him was because they knew a slave like their little brother Joseph probably would not last long. And he would die either by disease or he would die by getting beat. And they would be done with him once and for all. Twenty years pass. They're looking for food. And they come to Egypt. Unbeknownst to them, the second command of all of Egypt who stands before them, looking like an Egyptian, speaking Egyptian, is their little brother, Joseph. The Bible says that they did not recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognized them. And Joseph turned his head and he wept. Twenty years, Joseph has been put through the ringer by his brothers. Then he gets and he gets this cush job with Potiphar, right? Then his wife tries to tempt him. He says no, and he's put in prison. Why is this happening to me? I did what was right. Then while he's in prison, the baker and the cupbearer come in. He explains their dreams. And for two years, he's forgotten about in prison. Why is this happening to me? What did I do? So when his brothers come before Joseph, who is now the second command of all Egypt, begging for, for grain, Joseph is going to test his brothers. He wants to know, have they changed? Are they still the same? Have they went so far as to have killed my father? They killed me. Have they went so far as to kill my baby brother because they wanted to kill me? Joseph had no idea. So Joseph puts them to the test. He says, what are you doing here? And they say, well, we want grain. Joseph says, no, I think you're spies. Remember, this is all taking place to an interpreter because Joseph is speaking Egyptian. No, no, we're, we're, we're not spies. We, we're of, we're, we've got one father and we have one brother back home and one brother is no longer alive. Joseph said, I tell you what, proof's in the pudding. You're going to leave one of your brothers here. You go back and you bring your baby brother and then if you come back with him, then I'll believe you. And then in Genesis chapter 42, the brothers speak and it says that they realize 20 years later the implications of what they did to their little brother. It says, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why the distress has come upon us. So they are admitting that way we heard him begging and crying for us not to do this. And we just said, too bad. Joseph understood what they were saying. And that's why he wept. Now, how do we forgive like Christ forgave us? I want you to go to Genesis chapter 45. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15. And in this, if you're taking notes... We're going to see four requirements of true Christ-like forgiveness. The first one is true Christ-like forgiveness requires vulnerability. True Christ-like forgiveness requires vulnerability. The second requirement for true Christ-like forgiveness requires humility. The third requirement for Christ-like forgiveness requires an understanding and acceptance of the sovereign, the perfect 
will of God in our lives. And then four, true Christ-like forgiveness provides for reconciliation. So as we read these verses, they may just, those four concepts may jump out of the page or not, but we're going to look at that this morning. So starting with Genesis chapter 45, verse 1, I want to give you a little background on this. This is right after his brother Judah, Joseph's brother Judah, gives a speech that Joseph realizes that his brothers have changed. Their hearts are no longer hard and calloused anymore. That's what Joseph wanted this whole time is to forgive his brothers and reconcile with them. Even though they had done the offending. Judah explains not knowing who he's talking to. He still thinks that he's talking to the second command of all of Egypt. Joseph's plan was to keep Benjamin and send the rest of them back. Judah said, oh, no, 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 please, sir. You can't do that. Because if our little brother does not go back, my father will surely die. Joseph, hearing this, now realizes that his brothers who had done all these things to him 20 years ago are changed men. So starting in verse 1 in chapter 45 of Genesis, it says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near me, please. And they came near And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you... Who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father all of my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept with them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. First thing we see in regards to the nuts and bolts of Christ-like forgiveness 
is vulnerability. We see in verse 1 that Joseph empties the room. Joseph, being the second command of Egypt, would have had an, a very large entourage with him. He would have had 10 to 20 armed guards around him. He would have had his secretaries. He would have had his scribes. It would have been a large contingency. Joseph makes himself vulnerable by getting everybody out of the room. Eerily resembling what happened to him 20 years ago. See, if you really want to forgive someone, if you really want to see forgiveness, it requires being vulnerable. Joseph made himself vulnerable. Joseph was probably not worried about them doing anything physically to him to harm him. But he, what he ran the risk at is his brother saying, we still don't want to have anything to do with you. Emotional rejection sometimes is worse than getting punched in the face. Joseph made himself vulnerable. The next thing that we see is that true Christ-like forgiveness requires humility. Look in verse 2. It says, And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph, second command of the greatest empire at that time on the face of the earth, is crying like a little baby. Snot flying everywhere. He could care less. People hearing him whine and cry. He could not care less of what people thought about him in the moment because he so desired to forgive his brothers and his brothers to receive that forgiveness. And the third thing that we see in regards to true Christ-like forgiveness is, do you understand and accept God's perfect, sovereign will? In this group of verses, in verses 4 through 9 in Genesis chapter 45, we see four times where Joseph says, God sent me here. God sent me here. It wasn't you. God sent me here. And then God made me. So often we're so consumed with ourselves, like James 4 talks about, that we think that we're the rock that God throws in the pond that causes the ripples. It's easy to think that, right? When something goes awry in my life, someone offends me, someone doesn't like me, Something happens to me. I'm thinking, God, what did I do? Why am I the rock being thrown into the pond? But what we tend to forget is that the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 that all things work together for good for those who are called. God does something in your life to you and through you that you don't even see. Scientifically speaking, if you throw a rock in a pond and it causes ripples, it goes and goes and goes even when you can't see the ripple. So are you willing to understand and accept the sovereign will of God? Joseph was. He said, you guys did it, but God is the one who orchestrated it. And we see why. Because Joseph had to learn some things in a hole behind a camel's behind going to Egypt. In Potiphar's house, in the prison, 
for his sanctification to put him to a spot where he could forgive his brothers for the horrible thing that they did to them. I'm going to be quite honest. If somebody did that to me, I'd have a hard time forgiving. You know, I'm wearing a tie and a jacket right here, and that probably looks odd for some of you who know me. I don't wear that often, but I'm just like you. I'm no different than you. I've got red blood coursing through my veins. I'm flesh and blood. The fourth thing that we see that Christ-like forgiveness provides for reconciliation. That word reconciliation means a change in relationship. Either attitudinally towards someone or physically towards someone. A lot of people... As they get older and they get to the point where they are on their deathbed, they struggle with going into eternity. I'm talking about Christians. Because they're holding on to forgiveness they never gave to someone who's already passed and gone on. They're in a position flat on their back with tubes in their body and they can't go five miles down the road to tell that person, I'm sorry, I never should have done that. Please forgive me. So here on earth, reconciliation sometimes is impossible physically because of distance. But attitudinally, it's always possible. And the restoration is Joseph weeps with his brothers and they're talking to one another. And he also makes this statement. He goes, I'm going to put you in the land of Goshen. The land of Goshen was the cream of the crop in Egypt. It was the best of the land. He said, not only am I going to provide for you guys, but I'm going to provide for your Children, your children's children, and those after you. Why on earth, how on earth would Joseph forgive his brothers for what they had done and then shower blessings upon his brother's children? He understood those four things. Now, I want us to think about this, and we're going to park the bus here just for a little bit. In regards to forgiveness that you and I have received from Jesus Christ, we see the same four things. Things. How did you get forgiven from your sins? What made it possible for you and I, if you're born again in this room this morning, to be able to one day when you die, you'll live as long as God lives if you're born again. You'll live in heaven where there's no more tears. There's no more need to ask for forgiveness. There's no more getting dogged out by people, to be ridiculed by people, to suffer. So why do you deserve it? Why do I deserve it? How did that even happen? Well, the first thing is Jesus, the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, made himself vulnerable. Jesus comes down and dwells with man in the flesh. Emmanuel, we sang about that. A babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. How vulnerable is an infant? Jesus came to the earth. He was born in the flesh. He was vulnerable to the elements around him. He was vulnerable to Herod's wrath to kill him. He was vulnerable to his brothers who he came to die for. And they said, we will not have this man rule over us. Isaiah 53, 3, the prophecy Concerning the Messiah, Jesus himself said he was despised and rejected by man. 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. What made our forgiveness possible? The second thing is that Jesus made himself humble. He leaves the the throne of glory, the halls of heaven, to walk on earth as a human being for those he came to redeem. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. The cross was for the worst, the vilest of criminals in Rome. Jesus on the cross makes himself vulnerable, does he not? People mocking him, spitting at him. He's humbled. Like Joseph, why is this happening to me? God, why did I do? Remember what Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For you and for me. The sin of the world was put on Christ and God the Father couldn't look on him at that time for you and for me. The king of all the universe humbled himself to take on our sin, to be crushed by his Father. Jesus understood and accepted the sovereign will of God. We're all familiar with Jesus was in the garden. Luke says that he was in anguish and knowing what was going to befall him, he was sweating Great drops of blood. Jesus completely understood the sovereign will of God because before the foundation of the world, it was set up that Jesus would be the lamb to take away the sin of the world. Before the foundations of the world were laying. Before Genesis 3.15, it was God's sovereign plan to crush Christ in our place. Luke 22.42 Jesus is in the garden and Jesus is praying. It says, and he withdrew from them, talking about his disciples, about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Your sovereign will be done. Jesus fully understood that. And then Jesus provided forgiveness for us because of what he did on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. But he also provided reconciliation for us who were enemies, rebels against God, are now sons and daughters of God. Romans 5.10 says, For while we were enemies, rebels, God-haters, we were reconciled to God by the death A brutal death, I might add. One that he didn't deserve that was supposed to be for us of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. As human beings, we struggle in the flesh. We struggle with a lot of things. But I think one of the biggest things that hinder our walk with the Lord, our relationship with other people, is we refuse to forgive. And I say refuse because if I don't give forgiveness to somebody, that's the same thing as refusing to give it. So perhaps you're in the room this morning, and you're the one with the bitter spirit. You're the one with the angst. You're the one that's carrying that anvil. Every time you see that person, you know you need to ask forgiveness from, or you need to forgive. 
Aren't you tired of living like that? Aren't you tired of walking around like that? Aren't you tired of your sanctification and, and your fellowship with God Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ, is suffering because we refuse to do what Christ did? If you remember the story of Corrie ten Boom, Corrie ten Boom is from the Netherlands. Her family were Dutch Reformed, and in the 1940s when Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime came in and to, to the Netherlands, Corrie ten Boom and her family would shelter and hide Jews fleeing the country. One day, her family was ratted out. German officials came in, put the whole family in prison. Corrie ten Boom's dad dies in prison. And then Corey and her older sister, Bessie, was, they were taken to Ravensbrück concentration camp, which was an all-female concentration camp. There was a particular guard there that was very brutal and vile. And he treated all the women there horribly, especially Corey's older sister who died in the concentration camp. For years, Corey had that in the back of her mind. But after the war, Corey decided that she needed to go and she needed to share with people how to forgive. So she would go on these speaking tours. One day, she was in Berlin after she had spoke to a crowd. And a man started walking up the aisle to the front where she was at. And she immediately recognized who he was. He didn't know who she was. And it was, in the, it was the guard that was in the Ravensbrück concentration camp that had brutally treated her sister and was one of the causes of her sister's death. Corrie ten Broom says that when she saw him, her heart turned cold with bitter and, and anger and her arms just felt like lead weights. This former Nazi concentration guard comes up to her and says, Fraulein, you don't know who I am, but I was a guard at... Ravensbrook concentration camp and I did horrible horrible unspeakable unforgivable things to people there but I've become a Christian and God is forgiving for that and I've asked God because you've forgiven me Lord give me the grace to go to those people that were my victims and ask for their forgiveness and he looked at Corey ten Boom and said will you forgive me Corrie ten Boom said, I could not forgive him. Remembering what he had done. Remember how her sister had suffered, how she herself had been shamed in front of him. She said, I could not forgive him. Then she said, but then through the Holy Spirit, God opened my mind and I saw Christ on the cross, vulnerable, humiliated, suffering for me, and she said, God's love at that point was greater than my anger. She said she reached out her hand and took this guy's hand and said, Brother, I forgive you. She said, You'll never experience a flood of God's love until you forgive someone. Corrie Boom also said this. She said, Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can always act despite the temperature of the heart. As we think about what we've 
talked about this morning. Perhaps you're in the room this morning, and maybe you have something to take care of. Maybe there's somebody that you need to ask forgiveness for. Maybe there's somebody that you need to forgive. Or maybe you're here this morning, and you've never accepted the forgiveness that Christ offers to you. To be cleansed from your sin, your wickedness, your ungodliness, your unworthiness. The Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It would be a shame that you've been introduced to the one who's forgiven you of your sin. The only one who can. So that you can spend an eternity with God. To live as long as God lives. To experience the joy of a relationship with the creator of the universe. And you should walk away today. And say, I will not have this man rule over me. Beloved, it would be the saddest day in your life. In closing, I want to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 through 32 again. Perhaps as we read that, maybe it will resonate a little differently than you've read it before. Than you've heard it before. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. And slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you.